0: Section 6 of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir, read by Adrian Pretzelis. July 9. Exhilarated with the mountain air, I feel like shouting this morning with excess of wild animal joy." The Indian lay down away from the fire last night, without blankets, having nothing on by way of clothing but a pair of blue overalls and a calico shirt, wet with sweat. The night air is chilly at this elevation, and we gave him some horse blankets, but he didn't seem to care for them. A fine thing to be independent of clothing, where it is so hard to carry. Where food is scarce he can live on whatever comes in his way—a few berries, roots, birds' eggs, grasshoppers, black ants, fat wasp, or bumblebee larvae—without feeling that he is doing anything worth mention. So I have been told. Our course to-day was along the broad top of the main ridge to a hollow beyond Crane Flat. It is scarce at all rocky, and is covered with the noblest pines and spruces I have yet seen. Sugar pines from six to eight feet in diameter are not uncommon, with a height of two hundred feet or even more. The silver firs, Abbey's Conchola and Abbey's Magnifica, are exceedingly beautiful especially the magnifica which becomes more abundant the higher we go it is of great size one of the most notable in every way of the giant conifers of the sierra i saw specimens that measured seven feet in diameter and over two hundred feet in height while the average size for what might be called full-grown mature trees can hardly be less than one hundred and eighty or two hundred feet high and five or six feet in diameter. And with these noble dimensions there is a symmetry and perfection of finish not to be seen in any other tree, hereabout at least. The branches are whirled in fives mostly, and stand out from the tall, straight, exquisitely tapered bowl in level collars, each branch regularly pinnated like the fronds of ferns, and densely clad with leaves all around the branchlets thus giving them a singularly rich and sumptuous appearance. The extreme top of the tree is a thick blunt shoot, pointing straight to the zenith like an admonishing finger. The cones stand erect like casks on the upper branches. They are about six inches long, three in diameter, blunt, velvety and cylindrical in form, and very rich and precious-looking. The seeds are about three-quarters of an inch long, dark, reddish-brown, with brilliant iridescent purple wings, and, when ripe, the cone falls to pieces, and the seeds, thus set free at a height of one hundred and fifty or two hundred feet, have a good send-off, and may fly considerable distances in a good breeze, and it is when a good breeze is blowing that most of them are shaken free to fly. The other species, Abies concolor, attains nearly as great a height and thickness as the Magnifica, but the branches do not form such regular whorls, nor are they so exactly pinnated or richly leaf-clad. Instead of growing all around the branchlets, the leaves are mostly arranged in two flat horizontal rows. The cones and seeds are like those of the Magnifica in form, but less than half as large. The bark of the Magnifica is reddish-purple and closely furrowed, that of the concola grey and widely furrowed—a noble pair. At Crane Flat we climbed a thousand feet or more in a distance of about two miles, the forest growing more dense, and the silvery Magnifica fir forming a still greater portion of the whole. Crane Flat is a meadow with a wide, standy border lying on the top of the divide it is often visited by blue cranes to rest and feed on their long journeys hence the name it is about half a mile long draining into the merced sedgy in the middle with a margin bright with lilies columbines larkspurs lupins castilia then an outer zone of dry gently sloping ground starred with a multitude of small flowers Uninus, mumulus gilia with rosettes of spragula and tufts of several species of erugonum and the brilliant the noble forest wall about it is made up of the two silver firs and the yellow and sugar pines which here seem to reach their highest pitch of beauty and grandeur for the elevation six thousand feet or a little more is not too great for the sugar and yellow pines or too low for the magnifica fir, while the Concolor seems to find this elevation the best possible. About a mile from the north end of the flat there is a grove of Sequoia gigantea, the king of all the conifers. Furthermore, the Douglas spruce, (Pseudotsuga douglasi, and Libocedrus decorans, and a few two-leafed pines occur here and there, forming a small part of the forest three pines, two silver firs, one douglas spruce, one sequoia. All of them, except the two-leafed pine colossal trees, are found here together, an assemblage of conifers unrivalled on the globe. We passed a number of charming garden-like meadows, lying on top of the divide, or hanging like ribbons down its sides, embedded in the glorious forest. Some are taken up chiefly with the tall, white-flowered Veritrum californicum, with boat-shaped leaves about a foot long, eight or ten inches wide, and veined like those of Cypripedium, a robust, hearty, lilacaceous plant, fond of water and determined to be seen. Columbine and larkspur grow on the drier edges of the meadows, with a tall, handsome lupin standing waist-deep in long grasses and sedges. Castillias, too of several species, make a bright show with beds of violets at their feet. But the glory of these forest meadows is a lily—el pavum. The tallest are from seven to eight feet high, with magnificent racemes of ten to twenty or more small orange-coloured flowers. They stand out free in open ground, with just enough grass and other companion plants about them to fringe their feet, and show them off to best advantage. This is a grand addition to my lily acquaintances—a true mountaineer, reaching prime vigour and beauty at a height of seven thousand feet or thereabouts. It varies, I find, very much in size, even in the same meadow, not only with the soil, but with age. I saw a specimen that had only one flower, and another within a stone's throw had twenty-five. And to think that the sheep should be allowed in those lily-meadows, after how many centuries of Nature's care planting and watering them, tucking the bulbs in snugly below the winter frost, shading the tender shoots with clouds drawn above them like curtains, pouring refreshing rain making them perfect in beauty, and keeping them safe by a thousand miracles—yet, strange to say, allowing the trampling of devastating sheep. One might reasonably look for a wall of fire to fence such gardens. So extravagant is nature with her choicest treasures, spending plant beauty as she spends sunshine, pouring it forth into land and sea garden and desert and so the beauty of lilies falls on angels and men bears and squirrels wolves and sheep birds and bees but as far as i have seen man alone and the animals he tames destroy these gardens awkward lumbering bears the don tells me love to wallow in them in hot weather and deer with their sharp feet cross them again and again, sauntering and feeding. Yet never a lily have I seen spoiled by them. Rather, like gardeners, they seem to cultivate them, pressing and dibbling as required. Anyhow not a leaf or petal seems misplaced. The trees round about them seem as perfect in beauty and form as the lilies. Their boughs whirled like lily-leaves in exact order. This evening, as usual, the glow of our campfire is working enchantment on everything within reach of its rays. Lying beneath the firs it is glorious to see them dipping their spires in the starry night, the sky like one vast lily-meadow in bloom. How can I close my eyes on so precious a night? July 10 A Douglas Squirrel, peppery, pungent autocrat of the woods, is barking overhead this morning, and the small forest birds, so seldom seen when one travels noisily, are out on sunny branches along the edge of the meadow getting warm, taking a sun-bath and a dew-bath—a fine sight. How charming the sprightly confident looks and ways of these little feathered people of the trees! They seem sure of dainty, wholesome breakfasts, and where are so many breakfasts to come from? How helpless should we find ourselves should we try to set a table for them of such buds, seeds, insects, etc., as would keep them in the pure, wild health they enjoy! not a headache or any other ache amongst them, I guess. As for the irrepressible Douglas Squirrels, one never thinks of their breakfasts or the possibility of hunger, sickness, or death. Rather they seem like stars, above chance or change, even though we may see them at times busy gathering burrs, working hard for a living. On through the forest ever higher we go a cloud of dust dimming the way, thousands of feet trampling leaves and flowers, but in this mighty wilderness they seem but a feeble band, and a thousand gardens will escape their blighting touch. They cannot hurt the trees, though some of the seedlings suffer, and should the woolly locusts be greatly multiplied, as on account of dollar value they are likely to be, then the forests too may in time be destroyed. Only the sky will then be safe, though hid from view by dust and smoke, incense of a bad sacrifice. Poor, helpless, hungry sheep, in a great part misbegotten, without good right to be, semi-manufactured, less made by God than man, born out of time and place, yet their voices are strangely human, and call out one's pity. Our way is still along the Merced and Tuolumne divide, the streams on our right going to swell the songful Yosemite River, those on our left to the songful Tuolumne, slipping through sunny carracks and lily-meadows, and breaking into song down a thousand ravines almost as soon as they are born. A more tuneful set of streams surely nowhere exists, or more sparkling crystal pure, now gliding with tinkling whisper, now with merry dimpling rush in and out through sunshine and shade, shimmering in pools, uniting their currents, bouncing, dancing from form to form over cliffs and inclines, ever more beautiful the farther they go until they pour into the main glacial rivers. All day I have been gazing in growing admiration at the noble groups of the magnificent silver fir which is more and more taking the ground to itself. The woods above Crane-flat still continue comparatively open, letting in the sunshine on the brown needle-strewn ground. Not only are the individual trees admirable in cemetery and superb in foliage and port, but half a dozen or more often form temple groves in which the trees are so nicely graded in size and position as to seem one. Here indeed is the tree-lover's paradise. The dullest eye in the world must surely be quickened by such trees as these. Fortunately the sheep need little attention, as they are driven slowly and allowed to nip and nibble as they like. Since leaving Hazel Green we have been following the Yosemite Trail. Visitors to the famous valley coming by way of Coulterville and Chinese Camp pass this way, the two trails uniting at Crane Flat, and enter the valley on the north side. Another trail enters on the south side by way of the Mariposa. The tourists we saw were in parties of from three or four to fifteen or twenty, mounted on mules or small mustang ponies. A strange show they made, winding single file through the solemn woods in gaudy attire, scaring the wild creatures, and one might fancy that even the great pines would be disturbed and groan aghast. But what may we say of ourselves and the flock? We are now camped at Tamarack Flat within four or five miles of the lower end of Yosemite here is another fine meadow embosomed in the woods with a deep clear stream gliding through it its banks rounded and bevelled with a thatch of dipping sedges the flat is named after the two-leaved pine Pinus contorta variant mariana common here especially around the cool margin of the meadows On rocky ground it is a rough, thick-set tree, about forty to sixty feet high and one to three feet in diameter, bark thin and gummy, branches rather naked, tassels, leaves and cones small. But in damp, rich soil it grows close and slender, and reaches a height at times of nearly a hundred feet. Specimens only six inches in diameter at the ground are often fifty or sixty feet in height, as slender and sharp in outline as arrows, like the true tamarack, larch, of the eastern states. Hence the name, though it is a pine. July 11 The Don has gone ahead on one of the pack-animals to spy out the land to the north of Yosemite, in search of the best point for a central camp. Much higher than this we cannot now go, for the upper pastures, said to be better than any hereabouts, are still buried in heavy winter snow. Glad I am that camp is to be fixed in the Yosemite region, for many a glorious ramble I'll have along the top of the walls, and then what landscapes I shall find with their new mountains and canyons, forests and gardens, lakes and streams and falls. We are now about seven thousand feet above the sea, and the nights are so cool we have to pile coats and extra clothing on top of our blankets. Tamarack Creek is icy cold, delicious, exhilarating champagne water. It is flowing bank-full in the meadow with silent speed, but only a few hundred yards below our camp the ground is bare grey granite strewn with boulders. Large spaces, being without a single tree, are only a small one here and there, anchored in narrow seams and cracks. The boulders, many of them very large, are not in piles, or scattered like rubbish among loose crumbling debris as if weathered out of the solid as boulders of disintegration. They mostly occur singularly, and are lying on a clean pavement on which the sunshine falls in a glare that contrasts with the shimmer of light and shade we have been accustomed to in the leafy woods. And strange to say these boulders lying so still and deserted, with no moving force near them, no boulder-carrier anywhere in sight, were nevertheless brought from a distance, as difference in colour and composition shows, quarried, and carried, and laid down here each in its place—nor have they stirred most of them through calm and storm since first they arrived. They look lonely here—strangers in a strange land—huge blocks, angular mountain-chips, the largest twenty or thirty feet in diameter, the chips that nature has made in modelling her landscapes, fashioning the forms of her mountains and valleys. And with what tool were they quarried and carried? On the pavement we find its marks. The most resisting, unweathered portion of the surface is scored and striated in a rigidly parallel way, indicating that the region has been overswept by a glacier from the northeastward, grinding down the general mass of the mountains, scoring and polishing, producing a strange, raw, wiped appearance and dropping whatever boulders it chanced to be carrying at the time it was melted at the close of the glacial period. A fine discovery, this! As for the forests we have been passing through, they are probably growing on deposits of soil, most of which has been laid down by this same ice agent in the form of moraines of different sorts, now in great part disintegrated and outspread by post-glacial weathering. Out of the grassy mountain and down over this ice plained granite runs the glad young Tamarack Creek, rejoicing, exulting, chanting, dancing in white, glowing, irised falls and cascades, on its way to the Merced Canyon, a few miles below Yosemite, falling more than three thousand feet in a distance of about two miles. All the Merced streams are wonderful singers and Yosemite is the centre where the main tributaries meet. From a point about half a mile from our camp we can see into the lower end of the famous valley, with its wonderful cliffs and groves, a grand page of mountain manuscript that I would gladly give my life to be able to read. How vast it seems! How short human life, when we happen to think of it, and how little we may learn! however hard we try. Yet why bewail our poor, inevitable ignorance? Some of the external beauty is always in sight, enough to keep every fibre of us tingling, and this we are able to gloriously enjoy, though the methods of its creation may lie beyond our ken. Sing on, brave Tamarack Creek, fresh from your snowy fountains plash and swirl and dance to your fate in the sea, bathing, cheering every living thing along your way. Having greatly enjoyed all this huge day, sauntering and seeing, steeping in the mountain influences, sketching, noting, pressing flowers, drinking ozone and tamarack water. Found the white, fragrant Washington lily the finest of all the Sierra Lilies. Its bulbs are buried in shaggy chaparral tangles, I suppose for safety from pawing bears, and its magnificent panicles sway and rock over the top of the rough, snow-pressed bushes, while big, bold, blunt-nosed bees drone and mumble in its polony bells. A lovely flower! worth going hungry and footsore endless miles to see. The whole world seems richer now that I have found this plant in so noble a landscape. A log-house serves to mark a claim to the Tamarack meadow, which may become valuable as a station in case travel to Yosemite should greatly increase. Belated parties occasionally stop here. A white man with an Indian woman is holding possession of the place sauntered up the meadow about sundown out of sight of camp and sheep and all human mark into the deep peace of the solemn old woods everything glowing with heaven's unquenchable enthusiasm july twelve the dawn has returned and again we go on pilgrimage looking over the yosemite creek country he said From the tops of the hills you see nothing but rocks and patches of trees, but when you go down into the rocky desert you find no end of small grassy banks and meadows, and the country is not half so lean as it looks. There we'll go and stay till the snow is melted from the upper country." I was glad to hear that the high snow made a stay in the Yosemite region necessary, for I am anxious to see as much of it as possible. What fine times I shall have, sketching, studying plants and rocks, and scrambling about the brinks of the great valley, alone, out of sight and sound of the camp! We saw another party of Yosemite tourists to-day. Somehow most of these travellers seem to care but little for the glorious objects about them, though enough to spend time and money, and endure long rides to see the famous valley and when they are fairly within the mighty walls of the temple, and hear the Psalms of the Falls, they will forget themselves, and become devout. Blessed indeed should be every pilgrim in these holy mountains." We moved slowly eastward along the Mono Trail, and early in the afternoon unpacked and camped on the bank of Cascade Creek. The Mono Trail crosses the range by the bloody canyon pass to gold mines near the north end of Mono Lake. These mines were reported to be rich when first discovered, and a grand rush took place, making a trail necessary. A few small bridges were built over streams where fording was not practicable on account of the softness of the bottom. Sections of fallen trees cut out and lanes made through thickets wide enough to allow the passage of bulky packs. But over the greater part of the way scarce a stone or shovelful of earth has been moved. The woods we pass through are composed almost wholly of Albi's Magnifica, the companion species Conchola being mostly left behind on account of altitude, while the increasing elevation seems grateful to the charming Magnifica. No words can do anything like justice to this noble tree. At one place many had fallen during some heavy windstorm, owing to the loose, sandy character of the soil, which offered no secure anchorage. The soil is mostly decomposed and disintegrated moraine material. The sheep are lying down on a bare, rocky spot such as they like chewing the cud in grassy peace. Cooking is going on, appetites growing keener every day. No lowlander can appreciate the mountain appetite and the facility with which heavy food, called grub, is disposed of. Eating, walking, resting, seem alike delightful, and one feels inclined to shout lustily on rising in the morning like a crowing cock sleep and digestion as clear as the air. Fine, spicy, plush boughs for bedding we shall have to-night, and a glorious lullaby from this cascading creek. Never was stream more fittingly named, for as far as I have traced it above and below our camp it is one continuous bouncing, dancing, white boom of cascades. And at the very last unwearied it finishes its wild course in a grand leap of three hundred feet or more to the bottom of the main Yosemite canyon, near the fall of Tamarack Creek, a few miles below the foot of the valley. These falls almost rival some of the far-famed Yosemite Falls. Never shall I forget these glad cascade songs—the low booming, the roaring, the keen silvery clashing of the cool water rushing exultant from form to form beneath irised spray, or in the deep still night seen white in the darkness, and its multitude of voices sounding still more impressively sublime. Here I find the little water-oozel as much at home as any linnet in a leafy grove, seeming to take the greater delight the more boisterous the stream. The dizzy precipices, the swiftly dashing energy displayed, and the thunder-tones of the sheer falls are awe-inspiring. But there is nothing awful about this little bird. Its song is sweet and low, and all its gestures, as it flits about amid the loud uproar, bespeak strength and peace and joy. Contemplating these darlings of nature coming forth from spray-sprinkled nests at the brink of savage streams, Samson's riddle comes to mind—out of the strong cometh forth sweetness. A yet finer bloom is this little bird than the foam-bells in eddying pools. Gentle bird, a precious message you bring me. We may miss the meaning of the torrent. But thy sweet voice—only love is in it. July 13 Our course all day has been eastward over the rim of Yosemite Creek Basin, and down about half-way to the bottom, where we have encamped on a sheet of glacier-polished granite, a firm foundation for beds. Saw the tracks of a very large bear on the trail, and the Don talked of bears in general. I said I should like to see the Maker of these immense tracks as he marched along, and follow him for days without disturbing him, to learn something of the life of this master-beast of the wilderness. Lambs the Don told me, born in the lowland, that never saw or heard a bear, snort and run in terror when they catch the scent, showing how fully they have inherited a knowledge of their enemy. Hogs. Mules, horses, and cattle are afraid of bears, and are seized with ungovernable terror when they approach, particularly hogs and mules. Hogs are frequently driven to pastures in the foothills of the Coast Range and Sierra, where acorns are abundant, and are herded in droves of hundreds like sheep. When a bear comes to the range they promptly leave it, emigrating in a body, usually in the nighttime, the keepers being powerless to prevent. They thus show more sense than sheep, that simply scatter in the rocks and brush, and await their fate. Mules flee like the wind with or without riders when they see a bear, and, if picketed, sometimes break their necks in trying to break their ropes, though I have not heard of bears killing mules or horses. Of hogs they are said to be particularly fond bolting small ones, bones and all, without choice of parts. In particular Mr. Delaney assured me that all kinds of bears in the Sierra are very shy, and that hunters found far greater difficulty in getting within gunshot of them than a deer, or indeed any other animal in the Sierra, and if I was anxious to see much of them, I should have to wait and watch, with endless Indian patience, and pay no attention to anything else. Night is coming on. The grey rock waves are growing dim in the twilight. How raw and young this region appears! Had the ice-sheet that swept over it vanished but yesterday, its traces on the more resisting portions about our camp could hardly be more distinct than they are now. The horses and sheep, and all of us indeed, slipped on the smoothest places. End of section six